Uh, I was talking with one of my daughters last week, and we were just kind of driving along, and she began to really just kind of like talk to me and open up her heart to me about, and we just kind of started chatting about various dreams that she's had and just different things that like weird dreams. And so we started telling stories about like the weird dreams we've had and stuff like that. And that kind of got me to talking about um, dreams that it's kind of a constant thing for me, not like super constant. So you don't need to like analyze me right now, but uh, the, like the classic drowning dream. You ever had the drowning dream, you know, where you're like, am I the only one? Okay, so maybe you do need to analyze me, but like uh, where you're like swimming or in the ocean or something and you start to drown. And I've actually had this dream end in a couple of different ways that are very different from each other. One way that this happened to me very often where I'll actually be in the dream holding my breath because I'm underwater and I'm actually, as I'm sleeping, holding my breath. And then I wake up from the dream because I have to breathe. And I'm, I wake up, my heart's beating and I'm all out of breath. Like, you know, because I was actually holding my breath while I was sleeping. I didn't know you could do that, but I've done that. And then I've had another outcome of the dream. And this one's way cooler where you're drowning and you're holding your breath, and I'm actually holding my breath, and then a moment comes where I can't hold my breath any longer, and I take a huge breath, but instead of waking up with my breath, I'm still dreaming with my breath, and there I am underwater in my dream, and I'm no longer, like I was drowning and holding my breath, and then all of a sudden I'm like, (gasps) and I'm like, well, I can breathe down here, and it's really cool, you know, and I try to kind of keep the dream going for as long as I can, like the underwater moment, you know, as I'm dreaming and sleeping, and, but able to breathe underwater. And the reason, of course, that it's cool is because it's so contradictory to the, our real everyday experience with any body of water. You don't just jump in and begin to breathe underwater. You understand you need to hold your breath. And so it's like a cool new reality and experience. Paul in Romans 6 is announcing to us a brand new relationship with this thing called sin. He asked last week, should we continue in sin so that God's grace, you know, his blessing, his forgiveness, should we continue in sin so that God has more opportunity to express His grace and His forgiveness and so that we can see the power of His grace operating. And Paul says, no, certainly not. How can we who died to sin live any longer in it? We've been identified with Jesus in His death, His burial, and His resurrection so that we too, like Jesus, can walk in a newness of life. In other words, our relationship, like my relationship with water in my dreams, our relationship with sin has radically shifted and has radically changed according to Paul in the message of the gospel. And the thing that we're going to get to today is this thing in verse 11 where the way that we apply this is that we actively, daily, from experience to experience, consider ourselves, think to ourselves, believe about ourselves, appropriate this great truth that God says about us that we are right now dead to sin but alive to God. The power that sin used to have over us when we were in Adam is not the same. We no longer have to sin. We can now choose not to sin because the Lord has given us a way of escape. Because we're no longer in Adam as believers, but we are in 
Christ Jesus as believers. Now, like I said, I know that this kind of thing is sometimes difficult to wrestle with, difficult for, for us as believers to uh, think about, but it is so foundational to who we are. And so, and, and to me, this Romans 6 verse 11 experience is, it's, I mean, it's beyond just a daily experience in my own personal walk with the Lord. It is, a, it is something that is so repetitive, it's, it's frequent in every single day of my life that I have to go through a process of reminding myself I am no longer under the power of that sin. I've been identified with Jesus in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And I am now dead to sin. It doesn't have the same power and sway over me. And I'm alive to God. Therefore, I don't want to operate in this way because I'm a different person. God has changed me through and through. And this is a difficult thing for us to sometimes believe, but that's why Paul gives us the exhortation. You have to consider yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God. So let's just walk through it here and see what has happened to us and how extreme this thing is that God has done to us in verse 5 to 10, and then we'll apply it in uh, verse 11. He says, again, going back to verse 5, he says, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So there's just a little bit of recap there. We studied last week and saw in verse 3 and 4 of this chapter that we, like I said, we died with Jesus, we were buried with Jesus, and he uses the word baptism. We were immersed into Jesus. We were dunked into Jesus. We were so identified with him in his death, also burial, very dead, and then also in his resurrection so that we could have a new life right now. Just like Jesus had a new life, it is the first fruits from the, from the dead, the resurrection. So also, that's the life that we can now have right now. We want to walk in the newness of life that Jesus has given to us. You probably noticed there in verse 5, he says that we've been united in a death like his and in a resurrection like his. Not exactly like his, but like his. You know, when we died with Jesus, we weren't dying for anybody else's sins. That, that was Jesus and Jesus alone. And when we rose with him, we did, weren't the first fruits from the dead like Jesus. So our death and our resurrection was like his, but connected to him. And really the word that you need to focus on in verse 5 is the word united. We've been united to Jesus. United with his death. United to his resurrection. Other words for united would be we've been joined with or knit together or we've grown together. We are one with, we are identified with, or we are fused together with Jesus. Right? This is crucial to the argument that Paul is going to make. Because the argument he's going to make is that Jesus himself has died to sin. And that Jesus himself is now currently alive to God. And since we are fused together with Jesus as believers, we also are dead to sin and currently alive to God. So he's building this case beginning in verse 5. Now in verse 6, he goes on and he says something that's radical and pretty astounding and has a lot to do with personal, the personal experience of victory in the here and now. So let's read it together again. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him, with Jesus, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now I asked all of you as I was reading through who would like to have that as a description of their lives. No longer enslaved to sin. 
That's a beautiful description, isn't it? Totally free, free from sin. I'm no longer enslaved to it. I'm not bound by it. Now, when he's saying this, he's talking about the practical experience. Like, I am, I've, I've grown, and I'm changed, and I'm different, I'm transformed. I'm actually experiencing the power of Jesus over sin in my life. No longer enslaved to it. That's a great description. Well, Paul is telling us here in verse 6 that there's actually a three-step process to get to the result of no longer being enslaved to sin, or perhaps you could say a two-step process. The first step in the chain is found there in verse 6. Our old self, number one, was crucified with him. That's the first step. Our old self crucified with him. Step two, he says, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. And then, as a result of that, we can then declare, I am now no longer enslaved to sin. So you think about that process. Here's, here it is. Jesus, when you became a believer, he took you onto that cross with him. You were identified with him there upon that cross. I know it's hard to imagine because of the timeline of your own life, you realize that you weren't alive when Jesus died on the cross. You weren't there 2,000 years ago. But Paul had said in Romans 5 that when Adam ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's like you and me sinned with him. We ate the fruit with him. We rebelled with him. And that was a lot longer ago than when Jesus died on the cross. So if we were able to be identified with Adam in his act, we can also be identified with Jesus in his act. So in that moment, your old self, he says, this is what happened to you. Your old self was crucified with Jesus at that moment in time. So you receive from the Lord a newness in that moment. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So you have a newness from Jesus when he dealt with the oldness, the old self who you used to be, the part of you that was under sin and weak and ungodly, called a sinner, an enemy of God. Your old self was crucified with Jesus. And I think the question that I would ask of you in that first step is, do you believe that that happened to you? Do you really legitimately believe that this old self, that when you said, I believe in Jesus Christ, I believe that he died for my sin, I believe he shed his blood for me, he took my place upon that cross and went into the grave and came out of the grave in newness and resurrection of life. And when you believed in him, put your faith in him, your trust in him, do you believe that your old self was crucified with Jesus? Do you believe that a transaction occurred inside of you? Do you believe that you were born again? You see, a lot of us, I think, believe that in the future something powerful will happen. But the thing that Paul is announcing is that at the moment of your salvation, something powerful did happen to you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? It doesn't mean that we'll be perfect doesn't mean that we'll even feel it all that often. Your alarm clock goes off in the morning and you're not going to feel like something amazing and new every single day of your life. But do you believe that? You see, this is a huge step in the Christian life and in the Christian mind to truly believe that Christ has done a work in taking me upon that cross with him. One uh, commentator named uh, Newell says it this way, and I, I love the way he describes it. He says, Perhaps there is no more difficult task 
no task requiring such constant, vigilant attention that has been assigned by God to the believer. It's a stupendous thing, this matter of taking note and keeping in mind what goes so completely against consciousness that our old man was crucified. Our emotions and our feelings deny this. To reason, this is foolishness. But what stormy seas has faith walked over? What mountains has faith cast into the sea? How many impossible things has faith done? In other words, it might be difficult for us to believe that Christ has taken our old self and crucified that old self with Him upon the cross. But by faith, we believe it. And we're confident of it. Amen? All right, so this is an important like, part of the process. Okay? That's what he says first, verse 6. Our old self was crucified with him. But secondly, he then goes on to say, did you see it there in verse 6? In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So, a step. It's not just that experientially we say, I'm free, I'm no longer enslaved to sin. It's not that we just say that and just kind of declare it and maybe sing about it or something like that. No, there's a process. Jesus took our old self and we were crucified with him. But then in order that, he says, our body of sin might be brought to nothing. Now what is, if our old self was crucified with Jesus, what is our body of sin? What is our body of sin? Well, it's actually not all that complicated. Our body of sin is our body, our flesh. This thing that has tasted and has experienced what sin is like. It doesn't mean that your body is inherently evil because the body can be used for good, the body can be used for evil, but your body has tasted evil, right? I mean, I know you're acting right now like you don't know what I'm talking about, but you know what I'm talking about. Okay, these bodies have experienced sin. So this thing, this flesh, this body that's experienced sin, It is to progressively be brought under the rule, the dominion, the power of Jesus. And the body of sin is to be brought to a state, Paul says, of nothingness. Uh, Another way of saying this in the New Testament is from Galatians 5 verse 24. He says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So when I came to know Jesus... He crucified my old self, but now I am continually going through the process of crucifying my sinful desires and passions that abide within me. I am bringing this body of sin as a Christian man into subjection. I am going towards that destination of bringing this body of sin to nothing. And there's always more for the Lord to deal with inside of our hearts and inside of our uh, lives. I remember being a, a, little, a little boy, and there was just so much about my dad that just fascinated me. You know, I just thought he was awesome on so many levels. I can remember watching him leaving the house and going to work, and I'd watch him walk from the front door to his car. And I remember on like foggy Pacific Grove mornings, I remember watching him blow his nose in the air. You ever seen that? It was like amazing. I just couldn't do it. As a little guy, I couldn't do it. I just thought that's amazing, you know, what he could do. And one thing that was amazing to me about my dad was the way that he would eat chicken. 
you know, we'd sit down as a family and we'd have a chicken and he, you know, I'd have my little drumstick, my little dude drumstick or whatever, and I'd eat my chicken. And then I remember it was like this classic moment. Like I grew to fear this moment. It was like, oh, here it comes. He'd look at me and he'd say, do you think you're done? You, are you done with your chicken? And I'd, I'd like look at it and I'm like, yes, I'm done. Look at that. I devoured every edible part of this chicken. And he'd say, uh, you, there is so much left. There is so much meat left on that bone. And my dad would take his chicken or he'd take my piece. And I mean, he like, he ate everything, like gross everything, you know, like all the meat, all the stuff that like isn't meat, you know, and he's just like, everything would just be like totally clean. And then this inevitable thing would happen. Whereas like we were sitting there just kind of hanging out, he would crack into the bone and he would start eating the marrow out of the bone. And when I saw that, I'm like, I don't ever want to eat chicken like you eat chicken. I don't ever want to be done with chicken, you know, kind of thing. But what he, what he was doing was bringing that chicken to a place of nothingness, right? There was always more. There was always more. Just like it's gone. It's all gone. And for us as believers, here's what he's, he's announcing to us. Your old self, crucified with Jesus, you still have sinful desires and tendencies. And part of the Christian life is to bring them to a state of absolute nothingness. This is what our sanctification is. This is what our process of growth is. What I'm trying to show you this morning, though, is that he's not saying, Jesus died for you, just stop sinning. So many of you, I know it, I know it. I read to you last week, Romans 6.1, should we continue in sin that grace might abound? And he said, certainly not. And that's as far as you got. You just thought, I got to stop sinning. I got to stop sinning. Jesus died for me. I got to stop sinning. And it's true. You want to grow. You want to have victory over sin. But Paul is saying, you won't, you cannot, unless you understand this reality about who you are. You're not going to get there without understanding your position and who you are in Christ. And this this flesh or this, excuse me, this old self has been dealt with. That's your position. It's died with Jesus. And now you take this body of sin, these sinful desires, and you go through a sanctification process where you put them systematically to death. Now the question that we might ask at this point is how? How do we do that? And there's a lot of ways to answer that question. But Paul doesn't want to go there until he says, so you must also consider yourself. The, the first rule of application of this great reality is that we go through a reckoning, considering faith process to say, I've died to sin and I'm alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the first step. After that, there's a lot of cool things that happen. Church happens. Fellowship happens. The Word of God happens. I think one of the strongest ways and one of the ways the enemy is trying to get away and get out of your life as quick as possible is prayer prayer happens you pray these things into your life you cry out to god about these elements in your life and appropriate them in prayer i mean when temptation comes along in my heart and life it's um, you want to immediately i'm not saying it always does but often it's immediately a father i know you say this about me here's the tendency or the feeling or the desire of this body of sin, this flesh of mine, but that's not who I am. 
And you say that I'm dead to this and alive to you, so I don't have to go there. And right now in this moment, therefore, I won't because I know who I am in Christ. Right? So prayer is a huge part of this. But the first thing Paul wants to say to us is not do this or do that to apply this, but know this, consider this, believe this, and have this as a part of your life. That, and then the result is that you might no longer, the end of verse 6, be enslaved to sin. So there's a process that we're going through. This is sanctification. Then he says in verse 7, For one who has died has been set free from sin. Right, so he just told us the body of the, the, the old man, the old self, died. We're bringing the body of sin to nothingness that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. And then he says, if you died, you've been set free from sin. So we're kind of like, well, what does that mean? Do I not have to bring the body of sin to nothingness? No, what he's saying here is, this is your position. Your position already is that you have died to sin, so you therefore positionally have been set free from, from sin. In other words, he's announcing your, your positional freedom before you enter into your progressive freedom in Christ. Now, some of your Bibles probably say in verse 7 that you have been justified from sin. Not set free from it, but justified from it. And the reason for that is because Paul uses a Greek word that could be interpreted uh, more accurately, justified. But, but, but part of what he's saying here is that the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled, therefore you've been set free. In other words, maybe a way to think about this is Paul isn't saying that you were enslaved and then one day were just emancipated from your slavery and that's how you got your freedom. He's saying, you one time were enslaved, but through the message of the gospel, you actually died. That's how you got your freedom. Or maybe another way to think about it, like, that, like in our own modern world is, if you get sick and have to call in to work and say, I'm sick, I can't come into work today, your boss is like, okay, cool. But then after a while, he or she is asking the question, hey, where are they? When are they going to come back? Like Joe called in sick on Monday. It's Thursday. When is Joe coming back? But if you die, your boss isn't going to call. Like, you know, it's like Joe died on Monday. On Thursday, your boss isn't thinking, when is Joe going to show up? You know, the, the thing is, your whole position has changed. You're in a new spot. You're in a new place entirely. And so what Paul is announcing is this is what you have. You have been set free because you have died. You've died with Jesus, so, so you have a new relationship. You've been set free from sin. So we died with Jesus, but he wants to highlight in verse 8 to 10 the fact that we also live with Jesus. And then we'll get to verse 11. He says, now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we also, we will also live with him. So we, we have this confidence someday in the future, but also presently, right now. We walk in this newness of life. Paul said in Ephesians 2, verse 6, that we currently have been raised up with Jesus and have been seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. So right now, positionally before God, you are seated with Jesus 
in heaven. That's how firm this unity with Christ is. And His resurrection and ascension in the mind of God, it's as if it's already occurred to and for us. And he says, verse 9, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So He says a few things here about Jesus. And this is important for you to understand because if Jesus, this is what all Paul is saying is, if Jesus had this, then you have this as a believer. So the first thing that He says is, Jesus died to death. Death no longer has dominion over Him. This is why in the New Testament, when they began talking about death for Christians in the New Testament, they stopped referring to it as death and they began to refer to it as sleep. Because they're saying, look, yeah, the body expired, but it wasn't actually death like we used to know death. The relationship has changed. They fell asleep for a time to be brought to life ultimately and eternally by Christ. He also says that Jesus died to sin once for all. When Jesus came and lived on the earth, He set aside the privileges of His deity and He was experiencing limitation. He had to pray. He could only go so far uh, each day. He had to expend His energy. He had to eat. He was tempted without sin, but He was tempted. He endured all of that. And on the cross, He actually became sin for you and for me. But when He died, He was no longer under any of that. He actually died to sin. And then finally, the life that He now lives, He lives to God. When Jesus rose from the dead, He received His glorified body and the unbroken fellowship that he had with the Father before the incarnation, he now has for all of eternity. The closeness, the connection, the friendship, the love between Father and Son and Spirit, so close, so beautiful, that they are one, one God uh, in, in three persons. That closeness, that fellowship, that connection, so tight and beautiful and close, what Paul is building a case for is that that's what we have right now. Jesus died to all that, that He might live to God so that we can then also, verse 11, He says, so you also. Why does He say so you also? He's saying Jesus had it, you also have it. And here's what He's saying. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Some of your Bibles, instead of the word consider, probably say reckon, regard, look upon, recognize, count, see yourselves as. But it means right now, I am continually going through the process presently. It's spoken in the present tense. I must continually, presently, daily consider myself as this, dead to sin and alive to God. So there's two parts to this that you and I 
have to play. Now, some of you should be really excited right now because I know that some of you guys have been frustrated as we've been going through Romans so far because uh, there's like nothing that Paul tells you to do in the first six chapters. You know, it's just, this is who you are. This is what God did. And it's just all God. And he did all these things like believe it, but that's it. Like, you know, just receive this incredible thing that he's done. And some of you are just going crazy because you like the second half of all the epistles and you like to be told like, do this and do that. And you're like making a list and things like that. And you just want to know what to do so bad. Well, here you go. This is one of the first things that we are told to do in the book of Romans. You must consider yourself as this, dead to sin and alive to God. You must, number one, consider yourself dead to sin. Dead to sin. You must remind yourself. You must continually preach the gospel message to yourself. That you are dead to sin. When that temptation comes into your life, because it will, and the body of sin is attracted to the aroma of it, you must preach the message to yourself. I am dead to sin. It no longer has the same power and sway over me that it previously had. I am born again. I am new. You must preach that message to yourself. And... We must preach that message to each other. Amen? We must speak to one another and encourage one another. That is not who you are any longer. You are new in Christ. You are dead indeed to sin. Maybe a way to think about this is, remember when you were in high school and there was like, whether it was the principal or it seems like usually it was the vice principal that was like the real, like they were the law in the school, you know, and the person like you didn't, when they walked down the hall with their like walkie talkie, like you, like you didn't want them to like notice you, you know, like no eye contact, you know, be good, you know, kind of, kind of thing. Like you did not want to get called. And for me, it was the vice principal's office. You didn't want to go there. And I will admit I've spent a few moments in the vice principal's office from time to time, you know, but it was like a place like, oh, you don't want to be uh, invited there. You don't want to go there. And like, so over the course of those four years, there's a certain like relationship to that vice principal. You know, when, the, when you see them, you know, for, for me, when I saw her, it was like a, oh, there she is, you know, kind of thing. It was just like a little scary. But then you graduate And, you know, they do this really clever thing, or at least they did in my school, where it was like, you graduate, but they're like, but we're not going to really give you your diploma until after the ceremony's over, because we don't want you doing anything stupid during that ceremony. You know, like, we still have the power, but then, like, finally, they mail it to you, and you're like, I'm free, you know, kind of thing. And then that moment happens where, like, in the grocery store or at the mall or something like that, you come across the vice principal. And you like see them in public and the first reaction is the old reaction. Like, whoa, there they are. They have authority over me. Act natural. Put away the water balloon. You know, or it's like whatever. And then all of a sudden you realize like, oh yeah, we have a different, we have a different relationship. You can't write me up. There's no, you know, you can't call my parents. Like, there's none of that. We have a different relationship uh, than we had before. And for us as believers, we have to understand that our relationship to sin is so radically different than it was before. This is very hard to believe. That's why Paul said you must, you also must 
consider this to be so, that you are dead to sin and alive to God. In the Old Testament, they, the nation of Israel had the Levitical law where all these requirements were held out for like basically rules of worship at the tabernacle in the book of Leviticus. Here's who can come and worship. Here's who can't. Here are all the different sacrifices. And one of the major words was the word clean and also unclean. And there were different ways that you could defile yourself ceremonially so that you couldn't come to God. It might not even be that it was actually like a sin, but it was just some, of, some form of uncleanness. It was a way for God to communicate that he's holy and he demands holiness from us. It was a way for us to understand we need the imputed righteousness of Jesus. It was kind of setting us up for all of that. So anyways, one of the things that could make you unclean was leprosy some kind of skin condition, skin disease. And it actually extended not just to the body, but into like garments, mildew, housing, things like that. And they had this elaborate system where priests would come and give inspections and have waiting periods and stuff like that. But every once in a while, uh, and they included this in Leviticus 14, there was the law for if a leper was cleansed from their leprosy. And there was a process they would go through. They didn't just like announce, I'm clean, and just go rolling into the tabernacle. It was more of a, I think I'm clean. And then the priest would come and inspect them. It would take days and then weeks, and there'd be a waiting period. But when when all those boxes were checked and they went through that waiting period, they were then brought to the tabernacle where this sacrifice was offered for them. And it's interesting because it was very, very similar, if not identical, to the sacrifice that would be offered when a new priest was consecrated to be a priest. It was kind of like God's way of saying to the leper, like, you're just as special to me as these priests are. You belong to me. And the blood that they would take from that sacrifice would be put on the earlobe, the right earlobe, the right thumb, and the right big toe of the leper. It was a way of God saying, everything that comes into your ear, everything that you consume, needs to be covered by the blood and belong to me. Everything that your hands do, needs to be covered by the blood and belong to me. And every place that your feet takes you needs to be covered by the blood and belong to me. But then after doing all of that over a series of a few weeks, the leper was then declared, a man who was unclean for a long time would be declared clean. And then he'd be sent home. He was now clean. He could come back into the covenant community. He was clean. And I often wonder, like, what was that like for any leper, I don't know how often this happened, if ever. I know in Jesus' New Testament ministry, it happened to a group of 10 lepers. But I don't know how often in the Old Testament, if ever, it occurred. But I often wonder if and when it did, what would it have been like for those lepers who were now made clean? You know, I know what it's like for me. Like, I just, like, if I go on a run and I run through a place where there's, like, poison oak at all, I get, like, phantom itching for, like, a week afterwards, you know? Or if I'm talking to a parent and they tell me, like, yeah, my kid, you know, they got lice. And, uh, like, the second they tell me that, I'm like, oh, yeah. And I start, like, getting itchy, you know, or whatever. Like, it just, it's just there within my mind. And I wonder what it was like for these lepers to be pronounced clean, but they have a whole history of leprosy. And to actually believe, I'm clean. The first sign, a little skin condition or a rash shows up to be wondering, like, am I really clean? 
or is this going to return? But what's being stated here is, no, you must consider yourself dead to sin. You must believe this. And this isn't just a one-time thing. It's in the present tense. It means that we are constantly saying, daily, currently, continually, I'm dead to sin. It no longer has the same power over me that it used to have. And not only that, but I also declare that I am alive to God. I must consider, he says, verse 11, that I'm dead to sin, but also I must consider that I am alive to God in Christ Jesus. I must regard myself as alive to Him. And when Jesus ascended, the oneness with the Father, so beautiful. I mean, remember when Jesus was on the cross, He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was quoting from Psalm 22, but He was indicating with all this sin crushing down upon him, that there was a separation. That the fellowship between father and son for the first time in all of history, in all of eternity, that there had been a break in fellowship. But through his burial and resurrection, the fellowship was restored never to be broken again. He's alive to God, is what Paul is saying. He's connected to the Father. And what's being announced to you and to me is that by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are also and must consider ourselves to be alive to God. We have it better than Adam had it in the Garden of Eden before his sin. The Bible teaches that he was walking in the garden. God went walking in the garden in the cool of the day looking for Adam. Adam, where are you? It speaks of fellowship, friendship, companionship with God. But we have something even better. When you're born again, God comes to indwell you as a believer. The Spirit of God lives inside of you. Our fellowship, our friendship, our life to God is so real and powerful and true. We can open His Word. We can hear His voice. We can sense His presence. There is a closeness. There is a fellowship. There is a friendship that is real and dynamic. And I know and understand how so often it doesn't feel that way. But that's why Paul is saying, you also must consider yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God. You have to believe this to be so. You have to go through the process of waking up in the morning and saying, I might not feel that way, but it nonetheless is true and I consider it to be true right now in this moment and my emotions might not be there but I'm going to speak to my father as if I am alive to him and you watch you watch as you live that out and consider it to be so and you go through those motions soon those emotions will follow and you'll begin to discover and experience a life and a vitality before God that positionally you have that you will then experientially be receiving and enjoying uh, in this life. So that's why I said these are really foundational truths for us to receive and to experience, but very hard for us to receive and experience. But Paul is not preaching a just stop sinning message. He is preaching, yeah, we want to grow past sin. We want to get over this. We want to put to death the body of sin. That's what we want to do. But we will not be able to do it unless we understand who we are 
in Christ Jesus. So let's pray for this because it really takes like a breakthrough in our own minds, I think, to get to this Romans 6 kind of place. You can tell I'm passionate for this particular subject because I know of its intense importance in life and discipleship. So let's pray it in right now and ask the Lord to help us with a truth like this. Father, this is in so many ways, I can feel it within my own body, within my own mind. It feels so counter my experience at times. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to consider this reality to be so. That we are right now dead to sin and alive to God. Father, we pray for this grace, this strength, this power, this belief to invade our minds, to fill our words and our breath, that we would confess this before you in prayer and that we would confess this before one another. And Lord, that we would be able to more and more put to death this body of sin, these evil desires and passions that rear their ugly head inside of us, we pray, Lord, that systematically by the power of Jesus they would be dealt with and that we, Lord, might be able to be set free experientially more and more from the bondage of corruption, from the bondage of sin. Whom the Son has set free is free indeed. And we believe this, Lord. We're confident of it, but we pray, Lord, that you would help us to, through this word, consider. Help us, Lord, to bring it into life and to appropriate it, Lord, more and more. Father, we thank you for this astounding truth that you speak, Lord, over us. We celebrate you, Lord, and we just pray it in right now. Maybe in your own heart right now, you just want to say this to the Lord. Maybe it's simply just... I agree. Lord, I agree. Maybe you've walked around as a believer feeling yourself dead to God and alive to sin. Tell him how wrong you've been. Please, Lord. Bed this within our hearts. Help us, Lord, to reckon, to consider. We thank you, Lord. Amen.